Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I'm pleased to welcome Jonathan Morduck, who is the co-author with Rachel Schneider of The Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty, uh, new this year, 2017, from Princeton University Press. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you, Stephen. So before we talk about uh, the book itself and this particular project, I wonder if you might tell our listeners just a little bit about uh, your background and interests and maybe sort of previous work that that led you up to this particular project. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I am a very unlikely person to have been involved in this project in some ways. Um, I'm an economist, and most of my work over the years has been as a development economist. So I started off doing some work in China, Indonesia, eventually more work in India, Bangladesh. So most of my work is thinking about how poor families in poor countries get along and how kind of thinking about poverty relates to how we think about finance. So this weird world where poverty and finance come together. I spent a lot of time thinking about microfinance, microcredit, those ideas that, you know, won the Nobel Peace Prize a few years back um, for Grameen Bank and Muhammad Yunus. So that's really been my um, kind of my academic focus as uh, you know as my career has developed over the years. And this book is really different. This book is about the U.S. It's about getting to know families in Mississippi and San Jose, Cincinnati, uh, New York. So in many ways, this book is about how a development economist. And a colleague, um, this book is co-authored with Rachel um, Schneider, you know, how we came to try to understand what's going on in America, but from a very different lens and a very different set of experiences than you know most of the literature on on poverty and low income America, you know, proceeds. Is it was there anything in particular in in observing sort of what you thought was going on in the United States that that made you think that it was worth turning your attention here, or was it just sort of an accident of your collaboration with Rachel? For a while, I'd been thinking about the U.S. Um, the collaboration with Rachel came about in the process of deciding to um, to take on the project. If we, if we can step back, I mean, the, the story was that. And I'm going to go back maybe uh, 15 years. The story was that I had been doing a lot of work on poverty. I'd headed a uh, UN expert committee on measuring poverty. Uh, I felt like at some level in the academic literature, I, I understood how to think about global poverty, or at least what the terms of debate were. And yet I felt kind of an intellectual crisis. At the time, this was probably the early 2000s, uh, something like 2.4 billion people were measured as being as living under a poverty line of two dollars a day per person globally. A lot in Asia, but you know, spread over 
uh, over the world. So about 2.4 billion, something like 43% of the planet. And with a group of collaborators, I mean, I think we all came to the same realization that while those, those numbers were stunning, it was really hard to make sense of them. It was very hard to make sense of how anybody could live on income so low. And in principle, that $2 a day was, uh, you know, meant to be adjusted, had been adjusted to approximate what $2 a day would really purchase in, you know, New Hampshire, USA or New Jersey or, or wherever, um, you know, be on equivalent terms to a U.S. consumption basket. And it was really sort of impossible to really imagine how so many families could live on so little and still put food on the table, deal with health problems, invest in businesses, keep their kids in school, do all the things that you know are important in life. And that that set of questions, and in many ways, that the inability to answer such a fundamental question um, led to a set of projects that were really undertaken by a group of co-authors, uh, one in Bangladesh, one in India, one in South Africa, that led to the creation of an idea called Financial Diaries and led to a book called Portfolios of the Poor. So the Financial Diaries is kind of created then was, was really very simple. It was you know, designed to answer that question, how do you live on $2 a day or how do you live on $1 a day? Most of the households actually lived on $1 a day that we got to know. And the the method was to just follow the families, create a research team, follow the families, track everything they earned and spent and borrowed and shared over the course of a year. So it was a fairly intensive, um, difficult piece of research uh, that focused on a small group of families only. It was so intensive that we didn't try to you know track thousands of families. It was roughly 30, 40 families in each country, but we tried to get to know them in a way that um, most economists, at least, um, wouldn't get to know households. So very different from the one-off surveys that are typical in academic work. So that, if I, I'll just give you <laughs> give you a sense of what that book, Portfolios of the Poor, did, is it, it started to change some ideas, and it... Um, generated a lot of attention uh, in a few ways. And one of them was showing that, you know, as opposed to what our assumptions had been, you know, that poor households living at that level would necessarily be, you know, living hand to mouth, kind of consuming everything as quickly as they could. Um, that instead, because they were living on so little and because their lives were fundamentally unstable, they were actually spending a lot of time trying to save, trying to borrow. They actually had active financial lives, much of it, you know, through the informal sector, through um, relationships with family and friends. Um, but they were thinking about it all the time. It was a huge activity. And that book and that research started to open up conversations about the financial lives of the poor and took it well beyond you know what I've been working on before, which was microfinance, which is really very focused on you know production loans for poor families who want to grow businesses. They said, hey, poor families are a lot like the rest of us or you know typical people in the US who may want to invest in a business or something, but also you know, need to pay the bills, need some liquidity, have a whole 
range of financial needs. And if anything, the poor need that more than richer people. So in many ways, it flipped our ideas. So, so let's b- before we we talk about what you discovered by importing those methods into looking at the United States. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, sort of of uh, how many households you looked at, where they were, what they had in common, and then how you actually gathered data on their spending habits? And I guess a little bit also about why that matters, given the other kinds of data sources we have available and what this does that those don't. So we're in the U.S. now. Um, so in the U.S., we, in the end, tracked 235 households, so bigger than the work we'd done abroad. We were generously supported by the Ford Foundation and the City Foundation, who really actually had approached us in the beginning and said, hey, Rachel and Jonathan, you guys should work together, and we're willing to fund this project. Um we started off with something like 400 families and then sort of narrowed it down partly through attrition to 235. We were not, we had no sense that we were trying to create a nationally representative sample, you know, a statistically representative sample where we could say, Hey, you know, 42% of Americans do this or that. Um, But we were trying to capture something that was typical. We focused on, Low-income, moderate-income households, so roughly a third below the poverty line, maybe a third below the between the poverty line and twice the poverty line, so near poor, and then a third beyond that, sort of close to the area median income. Everybody that we were focused on had at least one family member with a job, so we were not looking at the poorest of the poor or people who depend exclusively on the state. We were not looking at you know, retirees, for example, who, who weren't working. So we were trying to identify households that were, at least somebody was working, trying to get by in America, trying to sort out you know, how to make progress in an environment which you know, has become increasingly difficult for the bottom half of the distribution. And what it, so, and what is, what is it that, that, how did you, how did you get, you were looking for, for information both on their income and their expenditures. Uh, how did you gather those data? It was really painstaking. So we hired uh, a research team of 10 people. They were sort of spread out across these different sites, some in Mississippi, some in San Jose, some in, around Cincinnati, both in Ohio and Kentucky, and some here in New York. And they met with the households, you know, ideally every two weeks. We call this financial diaries, but in truth, it's a survey. Uh, but it captures the kind of intimacy of a diary and also, you know, some of the, many of the hidden elements that you would only see in a diary. Uh, and they met with them every two weeks or three weeks, sometimes a bit longer, uh, and went back through everything the households had earned and when they earned it, how they earned it, everything they spent, when they spent it, how they spent it. Now, whether it was on a credit card or cash or maybe it was an in-kind transfer, maybe, uh, you know, we were looking for things, for example, if, you know, you helped out someone by babysitting for them or someone helped you out by babysitting for them or, you know, informal transactions like that. Um, so we were looking for earnings. We were looking for spending. We were looking for saving, borrowing. Every, really every financial transaction we 
entered into this sort of crazy customized database that we had um, created for the project. So it was all very structured, um, you know, to give a complete picture, and then we could see inflows and outflows and do quality control checks. So I, I should say, I was just going to say after this, after we did this, our idea was to, you know, follow the households for a year. We spent another year then doing quality control and going back and um, checking on any big discrepancies in the data. So we really wanted to get this right. This was an opportunity that doesn't come along very often. So we really wanted to spend the time to make sure we had the story. So, so let's start talking about, about the story that emerged. What's, what's the sort of, what's the takeaway headline from what it is that you feel that you've learned about what's going on in the financial lives of these households? The biggest headline or the one that's gotten most attention is that we saw lots of income volatility. So, you know, we, more or less we expected that households would have fairly stable incomes. They would probably be low. That's a lot of the attention was on, you know, low wages. Um, we were surprised by how volatile it was that from paycheck to paycheck, month to month, yeah, you know, households' incomes were fluctuating, you know, hugely. To, to give you a sense of that, we, we started counting spikes and dips in monthly income. So that would be, you know, a month where your income was 25% or more above your average or 25% or more below your average. And on average, we saw that <laughs> there are a lot of averages there, I know. <laughs> but across the sample, we saw that on average, the households had five months out of the year where they were either experiencing a spike of this kind or a dip of this kind. And so this idea that, you know, life's generally pretty steady and you start to plan and budget around that, you know, that went out the window. So we saw a lot of households having a real difficulty planning and saving and doing all the kinds of things that I think better off households might take for granted. So that was the big headline. Although you did discover that, that even in uh, the sort of the households at the upper end, you were seeing similar rates of, of volatility there as well. Yes. We were seeing volatility at the upper end as well, not quite as pronounced, but um, we were definitely seeing it there as well. Somewhat different reasons. I think one of the big things we saw that was surprising was that the volatility was not coming from, say, hopping from job to job to job or you know, some of the things that I think economists have focused on was really coming from within job volatility. So you might have a job, a steady job, but your paychecks would not be steady. So, for example, we, we start the book with a story of a truck mechanic named Jeremy who works on commission. And it turns out that as a truck mechanic, this was one of the many things I learned in this study, um, as a truck mechanic, you do really well in the middle of summer when it's incredibly hot and the dead of winter where it's incredibly cold, where the trucks you know start to fall apart and the tires blow out. And that's when he would earn most of his money because he's working on commission. Spring and fall were really hard for him. And that created all kinds of complications for his family including the fact that at some points of the year, they actually you know, qualified for state benefits, even though on average they were not 
one of the many things that I thought was interesting is that that you discovered that that sort of there's there's uh, like Jeremy this sort of this predictable kind of volatility right that pattern tends to be fairly consistent from year to year and there are some sort of fascinating and interesting things that the family does to deal with that and there are other kinds of of, of volatility that are not so predictable can you talk a little bit about what that might look like in a household and then we'll start to maybe unpack those both a little bit yeah, the unpredictability um, was most pronounced on the spending side. So the the income patterns would go up and down, and mostly in a broad frame, they were fairly predictable. You knew that, you know, Jeremy knew the spring and summer were worse. Um, we tell the story of a, a card dealer in Mississippi who had great summers, Janice. <laughs> Everyone's at the casino in the summer, and fall comes around, and they all clear out. Winter's really hard for her. Um, she saw it. So they were Janice and Jeremy. They were really trying to save. Where we saw the biggest difficulties with volatility was on the spending side. So we saw levels of volatility there as well. And it would be unpredictability from, you know, your car breaks down, your a lot of health issues, um, roof needs fixing. Those were the situations where households were getting into most trouble. And so the tough thing was you didn't really have – the households mostly didn't have stability on either side. So, you know, if the uh, – if Jeremy's, you know, big expenditure moments were where were at the same time that his, you know, big in- income moments were happening, he'd be fine. But it was this mismatch between ups and downs in income and ups and downs in spending needs – that were really pushing the households um, into dangerous territory. You also talk about sort of the ways in which some of those effects can can compound. You talk about a ripple effect volatility. Can you talk a little bit about what 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 that is and how that plays out. So we do find ripples of various um, of various kinds. Um, so some examples of ripples would be where you know you might have trouble. Um, you might have, say, a low income together with, you know, an important bill you need to pay. Um, so let's say you got to pay your utilities to keep the lights on. But to do that, then you've got to, uh, you know, not pay your rent this um, this month. Households are often failing, you know, facing these hard choices. What would then happen the next month is – well, the lights are still on, except now you've got double right. the rent to pay. And possibly a late fee on top of it. Yeah, exactly. And there might be an overdraft in the mix too. And so it would compound. And those were the hardest times. And often, you know, they would be unresolved until, say, tax season came along and the household got a refund that allowed them to um, catch up. Yeah. Um, so, so – I mean, and I want to talk about sort of the the uh, the ways in which households try to to smooth both both income and expenses over over periods of time. But but I guess before we go there, I want um, talk. Why should we care about this? Why should we think about this as something different than the kinds of ways in which we think and talk about poverty ordinarily? What is what is um, sort of, of useful about thinking about this kind of volatility in that context. So if households had great ways to deal with this, right, if saving and borrowing was easy and as easy as economists, you know, write down in, in their models, then 
we wouldn't have problems. We really shouldn't worry about this. Households could deal with it on their own. But we know that households are living without a lot of slack. Um, the Federal Reserve has this incredible uh, survey called the Survey of Household uh, Economic Decision-Making. And there's a statistic that just jumps out from that, which is that 44% of the Americans they surveyed couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency based on you know existing resources. Right? And it's worse. That situation's worse for low-income households. It's particularly you know, worse for black and Hispanic families. So clearly households are having um, difficulty with the coping mechanisms. So if you have difficulty coping, then this kind of volatility um, can hit really, really hard. And part of what it's saying is, you know, we, we think about insecurity, insecurity in America often as a jobs issue. But today, unemployment is really low. It's like, you know, in the low 4%. And so the economic anxiety that households are facing can't be explained in the ways that we used to explain them, which is about, you know, do you have a, a decent steady job or not? What we're seeing is people with steady jobs, but they don't have steady incomes. And that changes everything and gives us a sense of kind of a divided America where one part is secure and another part is fundamentally insecure. And a lot of work, I mean, work being done by you know, sociologists and social workers at Chicago looking at um, hours in the retail and service sector, you know, are showing what's going on um, in part of this story. Um, but there's a lot of other work that's happening across disciplines that's starting to lay out this story about, you know, the increasing instability of the American um, kind of labor market. We've also, you know, we've got, you know, one, one, some, some sort of mismatched programs and institutions, right? I mean, if you think about sort of traditional income support programs, welfare programs, um, they, they are based on the assumption that when you report your assets and your income, that that's relatively stable. But if your income is fluctuating wildly from week to week or from month to month, your ability to access food stamps is going to be radically complicated, right? So that's going to sort of have this other kind of effect in terms of what kinds of of resources we provide to people who might be, be low income. Yeah, uh, exactly. We've got a welfare system that is designed for a different era and not designed for this kind of fluctuating moment. And so there we put all these burdens on households um, that aren't appropriate now. They, I think they were built with good intentions, but recertifying. Right? I mean, we find that people are asked to recertify at times when you know, they, uh, they're actually having a good moment, but then they have a bad moment after. So there are problems like that. Um, but there are also, you know, we see problems of different natures. For example, we often impose asset limits. So if you're in public housing or in some places, if you're on SNAP, on food stamps, you can't have too much saved in the bank. And, you know, that was imposed, I think, with a good intention. You want to make sure that the public resources are really going to the people who need them. But if you're in a situation with volatility, you need to have that buffer in the bank. And there's a really interesting study done by the Urban Institute that shows that the households which are able to build up that buffer in places where 
the asset limits have been lifted, say for food stamps, when they get off of food stamps, they're much less likely to go back onto food stamps at a later point. And so we have a lot of policies built for a different era, and some of the provisions are really undermining the success of the programs and of the families that we're trying to help. So can, can you give us a little more sort of sense of, of what households are doing to manage the volatility? What are, or how are they, are, are they in fact able to smooth consumption in ways or, or smooth income on the other end of the spectrum in ways that, that anticipate this and, and manage it? And, and what are those, those, those strategies look like for, for some folks? By and large, this is really, really hard. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just so much instability. you're managing exceedingly scarce resources, no matter what you're doing, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I came away impressed, humbled um, by getting to know what the households are doing. They're not, you know, all doing brilliantly or perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, very few are passive in the face of this. Uh, I, I'll give you a sense of a few things they're doing. Um, Janice, for example, the um, the casino card dealer uh, in Mississippi, you know, she knows that she earns more in the summer and she earns less in the winter, and it's hard. Winter comes along, her uh, grocery shopping definitely um, gets cut back. It is a hard time for her family, but she does try to manage. And so, one of the things that she did was open an account at a credit union about an hour away from where she lives. Right. And she's like, that's fine for me. And she said, and I said, you know, that credit union has really lousy hours. And she said, that's, that's good. I like it like that. And she knows that if she puts the money down there, it's going to be hard to get to. And it's, she's looking for the right level of inconvenience and having to drive an hour, you know, down the road was the right level of inconvenience for her. Anything more convenient than that, she fears that she would have dipped into it too easily, and then the money wouldn't have been around in December when she really needed it. But anything... So she has sort of intuitively arrived at, at some of the key insights out of behavioral economics. Yes. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Except, you know, what's interesting about behavioral economics, and there's an important nuance that gets lost, is that in behavioral economics, it's usually about imposing structure and really locking things up tightly. So the households, we got to know have another problem layered on that, which is at the same time they want structure and to lock things up, they also need flexibility. They also know that, you know, the the car may break down, the paycheck may be too low, there is this unpredictability. So they can't lock things up too much. That's the problem that I think behavioral economics misses although there's deep insight there. And so the households are kind of having to jerry-rig things or create these workarounds. And, you know, Janice, she also chopped up her ATM cards to make it that much more difficult. Um, but, yeah. you know, she said, um, for her. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that was going to just ask what else the people are doing. I was just going to say, <laughs> yes, another thing. Uh, we got to know um, someone named Robert. He's here. He works in IT. And when I say here, I mean here in New York City. Um, works in IT in New York City. Uh, he was living on his mother's um, couch trying to save up money for a rent deposit so he could get his own place. And he saved by giving the money to his mother. 
And we see a lot of that as well. In fact, I see a lot of it abroad. We call it you know, using a money guard, at least in Bangladesh, that's what we often say. But we saw that in practice a lot in the U.S. And you know, Robert said, I'm giving it to my mother. She's like Fort Knox. I know I just can't get the money out. But Robert also knew that if he really, really needed it, he could get it out and that he was you know, providing a service that a bank or you know, another institution couldn't provide. But there, I mean, there were folks who would say that, that, that's, that, that's, that that's unwise, that that's bad decision making. Like the, I forget uh, who it is you talk about, uh, a couple of folks who, are, who over withhold payroll taxes, right? So that they sort of force savings so that come tax time, they get a big check. And especially if they're eligible for the earned income tax credit, they may get a, a couple of thousand dollars. Uh, but as you point out, that's an interest-free loan. Giving the money to your mom means that it's not doing any work out in in uh, a banking account. Doesn't that give some sort of credence to the folks who say, well, see, if we would just teach poor and low-income people to be smarter about how they manage their money, they'd have more resources available to them? It's an interesting question. I mean, as an economist, <laughs> I mean, you don't have to be an economist to know that when you open up your uh, um, bank statement every month, you know, at least for me, the uh, the amount of interest I'm earning by doing the prudent thing and putting my money in the bank is, you know, I'm earning about seven cents a month uh, on my savings. So, you know, in truth, and it may just be this moment, um, there's not a huge cost to keeping money out of the bank. But, you know, you're right. At some level, in a perfect world, there are probably better strategies. But, you know, the household's we got to know a lot of them, you know, don't live in that perfect world and they're just, they're struggling to figure out how to do it on their own with a lot of, without a lot of guidance. I, Becky and Jeremy, um, that's Jeremy, the truck driver. He's the guy who's over withholding, you know, they're also doing something that, you know, led me to scratch my head a lot, which was they had a savings account. They just couldn't save in it. And they just, they put money in it. They'd take it out. They just, found they didn't have the discipline and you know i was over at their house um and becky showed me their you know the bathroom cabinets they were full of shampoo and toothpaste and she showed me the freezer it was full of pork chops and frozen food and becky said well that's how we're saving now that's how we're dealing with our ups and downs because you know i know that if i you know if jeremy and i want to go out to the movies we can't just take a pork chop and you know, take it down to the movie theater and say, here's the payment. Um, and so that's a way that they've found that sort of works for them to stock up, literally stock up um, for leaner times. It's not really what you'd want to do. And there are better solutions, but households are doing what, what they can. And I think what, I think what Rachel and I took away from it is, it led us to think, well, if if banks or if, you know, smart folks in Silicon Valley who are trying to think about, you know, financial technologies, if they understood the households better, you know, there may be better products that could be created that would um, that would address the needs of these households. And so it's a lot. It's a big part of America, but they're systematically under the radar of both the government and uh, the private sector. You know, there's also there's there's um, you talk uh, about attention being zero sum and that the idea that if, you know, people are, are worrying about money, then they're not 
uh, using that time to think about budgeting strategies, right? And this is, you know, something that we know from, from a book called Scarcity, right? The ways in which sort of uh, increasing evidence for the, the cognitive effects of, of poverty, of living in, in, in a state of worry and anxiety and the way that that literally affects our abilities to think clearly about what rational decision making looks like. I mean, is, is, it sounds like you're seeing plenty of evidence for that going on in, in households that, that, um, those pressures are inhibiting their ability to, uh, make different kinds of decisions. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, it's interesting. The the book you mentioned, Scarcity, um, it's a fabulous book by you know, the psychologist Eldar Shafir and the economist um, Sendhil Manathan. That book was written partly in conversation with our work overseas, um, which was bringing up some of these same issues around the volatility and you know, just the difficulty of, of having to cope with this. And so I think it it is a big part of this story. I I guess a couple of thoughts. One is what that idea of attention scarcity is about, is about saying, hey, households don't have a great platform or a great uh, kind of environment in which to think about these really and work on these really complicated situations that they're in. And what policy should be about is not only you know trying to raise wages or institute you know better welfare systems, but more fundamentally trying to create and improve environments so that households have the wherewithal really to uh, to help themselves to step back to make investments to think things through. Um, part of that's in you know attention issues, and part of that we argue in the book goes beyond attention issues and goes to uh, you know the fundamental instabilities that households are really facing so let's as as we we work our way toward toward the end of our time here what can you talk a little bit about I mean, what what should we be doing what do those policy solutions look like in your estimation so there are really two dimensions you could think about it one is addressing the fundamental instabilities and this other is Okay, given that there's instability out there, helping improve coping mechanisms. So address the underlying problem or address the ways to cope with it. The underlying problem is is a tough one, but that doesn't mean we can't do something about it. You know, it's part of a shift in the labor market toward service and retail jobs that, you know, provide tips where compensation is based on tips rather than steady income, for example, or commission or self-employment like Uber. Um, there are a couple of things one can do. Seattle, San Francisco, New York all have legislation that says that firms employing hourly workers have to give hourly workers more stability, more notice, um, just uh, can't just spring you know, variable hours on them. So that's one kind of thing, legislation. Another thing is, you know, part of what's happened, and this is a much bigger story, is the decline of unions. So collective bargaining and workers, you know, what's happened is workers are seeing that risk is increasingly being placed on their shoulders and they're not able to deal with it. So any steps that help move that risk back onto employers um, is a kind of action that 
that we need. Those things are hard. So there's some issues or some approaches on the other side, I think, which you know, can help too. And that other side being helping households cope. One of the big ones um, is a bit indirect, but very important. And that is making sure that consumer financial protections are robust. So the households that we got to know are vulnerable to, you know, the excesses of the banking system, right? They get lousy credit card deals. They're exposed to payday lenders and others. Um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in D.C., you know, established under Obama with Elizabeth Warren's you know, strong promotion, um, has gone a long way to help shift the balance. Um, we need to protect the CFPB. And uh, that's key. There's also a lot of interesting stuff that's happening on the fintech side. I'm not someone who really thinks that, you know, an app is going to save your life. But there are actually some cool innovations that I think, you know, others can learn from. And one of the innovations, we, uh, we were having a running conversation with them while we were doing the research. It's a startup called Even. And it's an app. It sits on your phone. And Even takes in data, it's sort of algorithmically driven. It takes in data on your income and your, um, you know, all your resources. And it tries to create a smoother income flow for you in a world in which your income goes up and down. So it knows algorithmically when you're having a better month or a better paycheck. And it gives you the option of just grabbing some of that money and putting it aside. And then it also knows when you're having a lower paycheck and it can pull the money from that stock and give it back to you. So it automates all the borrowing and saving, which you usually have to fret about, um, and does it in a way without, you know, without your actually having to save or borrow or pay interest. It works on a fee basis. So I'm not endorsing the app. I think, though, that the idea is interesting and you know, signals you know, some of the kinds of possibilities once one sees the fundamental problem. We've been speaking with Jonathan Mordock, who's the co-author with Rachel Schneider of The Financial Diaries, How Americans, how, excuse me, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty, uh, from Princeton University Press, 2017. Um, so Jonathan, what, what, what are you working on now and what's next? Yeah, it's, I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, <laughs> you know how it is, you've got a big project and it comes to an end and all of a sudden there's all yeah. this air and room to breathe. Um, so there are a couple of things. One is I gave a presentation at Hunter College and Sandy Darity, who teaches down at Duke, um, happened to be in New York, happened to come to the talk and said, you know, there's a really important race element here that you're not talking about and people aren't paying enough attention to. So with Sandy Darity and a group of other co-authors, Jarek Hamilton, um, Bradley Hardy, we're writing a paper on how volatility fills out the story of race in America, at least the economic story of racial conditions in America. There's lots of attention to the racial wealth gap and racial earnings gaps, not much paid to this instability issue. But it's a fundamental part of that nexus, and we are in the middle of doing some work on that. Fascinating. Um, 
Thank you so much, Jonathan. We've been speaking with Jonathan Mordock, who's the co-author of The Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate it.